This podcast contains adult language and mature themes, which may not be suitable for all listeners. So listen at your own fucking risk. Essential NPCs, the podcast where we sample some of the best and possibly some of the worst tabletop RPGs. I'm Addie. And I'm Tommy. And you're listening to Series 10, Episode 10. Welcome to the neighborhood. And let's start it off with some announcements. Our first announcement is to acknowledge that this is, in fact, the last episode of the Essential NPCs podcast. It's been an amazing run guys i mean for you know we've been on the air for uh, over four years we've been working on this podcast for over five years and i it's i'm near speechless at this moment as we're talking in the final episode thank all you folks for all of your kind words and encouragements kind of Everything that you sent in to us, we are so thankful and blessed to have touched all of your lives through some role play and uh, spent the past four years doing something kind of amazing. This podcast has been a huge part of Addie's and my life, our life together. And I personally just want to thank you, the listener for being a part of it. This this community has been amazing for the past 4 years and it's been just an emotional roller coaster since Addie and I made the extremely difficult decision to have this be the final series of Essential NPCs. Our second announcement is that uh, this is the end of a series. And so we will be uh, skipping Words with the GM. Uh, our last Words with the GM was last episode. And instead of Words with the GM, we will jump right into the episode. And afterwards, stay tuned for Post Game Chatter, where we sit down with the rest of the cast and talk about the system and uh the campaign, and this time, the podcast as a whole. We've gotten so many great questions from so many of you. You guys showed out in force. We're super excited to answer all these questions. Also, on on top of all the questions we got submitted, tons of people reached out through all of our social media and our email to just give us extremely kind and heartfelt uh, messages about how our podcast has touched their lives in various ways. And, and I just... I want those people who didn't necessarily submit questions to know we read all those messages and they had Addie and I welling up at the eyes. It's It's been an amazing time leading up to this uh, to this finale. And uh, we're, we're really, really stoked to answer the questions in post-game chatter. And stick around to the very end of post-game chatter because we will have some announcements about what you can expect in these final days of Essential NPCs. We're not completely done yet. And with that little teaser... We are done with announcements, and we're going to move right in to Series 10, Episode 10, the finale, Welcome to the Neighborhood. Enjoy! The last time we left the Church of Many Tentacles, they had 
successfully gathered all of the ingredients they needed for the ritual to create an ancient gate out into the Deathlands, which would keep them safe from all of the ghost activity and um, otherwise negative arcane aspects of the Deathlands should they travel through from the city to it. They headed to the ritual site, a pagoda in a small park in Six Towers. However, they had drawn uh, a significant amount of attention to themselves, having killed a previous member of their cult, Sister Daphne, who had been placed under house arrest uh, and had a tracking spell on her, uh, carrying her body parts with them to the ritual site. They were unfortunately surrounded uh, by blue coats uh, and were laid siege to as Dub and Gok made the final preparations for opening the arcane gate. Doing the best that they could in the short amount of time they were given, one by one they exited the city through the portal giving themselves over to their faith and the ichor in the hopes that they would be ushered safely into the Deathlands. Dub, you find yourself pressed up against some sort of film uh, as you reach the other side of the portal. And you find the pressure of the arcane ichor uh, in which you are floating, sort of begin to push uh, on you uh, from all points. Uh, and the film uh, resists creating a huge tension and pressure on your body. For a moment, you feel like you see something just to the right of you swirl uh, in, in the ichor. And then you feel a massive blow to your back just in between your shoulder blades and you are forced out through the film. You find yourselves on uh, barren dirt covered in this black mire-like substance, uh, this thick ooze covering your entire body. And you look up and you see that a you've come through a portal um, and then you look down to see that you're missing the top two knuckles of each of the fingers on your left hand. The area around you uh, is there is a dry stone well uh, and a few dilapidated huts. Um, there's a little bit of corrugated metal and other stones. There are some very dead trees uh, and that's about it. What do you do? I am rather unsettled at the loss of uh, Knuckles. As this may put a damper on some of my work. And uh, I'm going to get up on my knees and try to see if that's real or not. It is very real. And uh, Dub's just going to sit there in disbelief that that's happened to him and also that the portal worked. Okay. You sit. And you sit, and you sit, the ichor sort of drying onto your skin and then slowly flaking off. Uh, you see the spirits sort of like wandering and swirling above you. And uh, what serves as daybreak on this world where it starts to get just a little bit lighter, because up until now, the only light 
source has been the portal, starts to creep across the sky. And no one has come through the portal? Not yet. Oh, dear. Um, how dilapidated are the houses that I see? Do they look like they're just old but still kind of maintained, or do they look completely abandoned? Um, they look completely abandoned. They have, uh, the walls are fairly low, and one has a portion of a roof, but for the most part, it's just the stone foundations and a low uh, wall that hasn't crumbled to the ground. I'll head on over and check those out. This is a relatively good start on a shelter, at least. Okay. Yeah, so you um, wander around. Uh, you see that there are actually quite a few building materials around here. If you could figure out a way to fashion some kind of like axe or tools of any kind or if you just have them on you uh then you could uh ostensibly use like the wood from the old like dead trees or uh the stones from around the area this this is not a bad spot you can see the lightning fences far in the distance, sitting on the horizon. It's uh, extremely far away, and there's no sign anywhere of the of the trains. I'll uh, start fashioning some tools to use and start putting together a shelter. I'll, st- I'll use as much stone as I can stack up and then uh, try to cut down some of the trees to uh, act as a support. Okay, yeah, go ahead and roll uh, Tinker, and let's see what you can manage. Four. Okay, great. So it takes you a little while. Um, You're not used to having only, like, half a hand. Uh, And so uh, you're learning to, like, reuse your hand as it is now. Um, I will mention that your hand was completely healed. Uh, by the time that uh, you got, you were pushed through the film of the portal. Um, so it's just, you just got some nubbins. Um, it takes you a while, um, but it's good because you, unfortunately, uh, it, it takes like two or three days uh, before the p- portal begins to sort of swirl again. And by then you have fashioned a decent beginning of, of a habitable home, uh, though your food rations are less than ideal. And uh, in a few days, uh, you've created a habitable home and you've started uh, to create a filtration system for water. The rain you catch can be cleaned and filtered into, into potable water. As uh, the portal, it starts to glow brighter and brighter and after about 24 hours of the of its beginning to react uh you can see a human form pushed up against uh the edge of the portal and uh just before daybreak gawk comes falling out of the portal uh completely covered in this thick ichor that you were also covered in uh and and gawk you um fall onto the ground having just been like felt this like immense force push you through this through this film on the edge of the portal and you land on 
the side of your head and, you know, like the rest of you too, not just like <laughs> and uh, you notice that it feels strange and you reach up to touch it and your ear is completely gone, uh, just like a little old ear hole. Uh, and then like the side of your head around it is all burnt and you can't see it. But uh, but Dub can tell you that you've got it's got it's got like a tentacle pattern, uh, like kind of like almost burned a burned tattoo, um, like reaching, like spiraling on on the side of your head. I see. Aralex has blessed you, Brother Gok. You don't you don't happen to have a <laughs> hang on. Ugh. Eh. Oh, my head. you don't happen to have a mirror, do you? No, I don't. <laughs> so when you say Aralax has blessed me, you you understand how that that feels unspecific, vague, maybe. What are you talking about? And can you speak up a little? <laughs> Come inside. Uh, There's an inside. That was fast. You you had like you had. To, 15 seconds to put this together? A couple of days. Oh. Yes. Oh, no. So so I won't know if the rest made it for days? That's what it appears to be. Well, Brother Theodore told me to keep this safe. I get out the ritual book, and I turn to the pages on, like, um, protective wards and, like, anti-spirit magic and maybe i can i look around this abandoned barren wasteland maybe i can set us up some defenses i guess in the meantime have you been attacked no it's just been me out here for a few days but i've got the shelter ready and a fire going and while you set up some wards i'll put on dinner and some tea huh have you, I don't know, it kind of seems like you mellowed out a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an interesting couple of days, and I hold up my hands. Uh, we've uh, both lost something, I guess. I, I, I'm sorry, that, that was me. I, I must have messed it up. I, I knew I wouldn't get it right. Now, now, Brother Gok, you know that isn't true. I could have just as easily miscalculated how much flesh my machine cut off, and it took the rest in what was owed. But we can discuss portal theory later. <laughs> <laughs> right now, let's get camp established and wait for our friends. I will say, uh, uh, Brother Brother Deb, uh, you also have the like tentacle pattern covering your hand and palm as well. Um, I did forget to mention that earlier. It's not uh, as if you were, f uh, you didn't get a cool tattoo too. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, so I'll set up uh, a kind of canopy net, not unlike the one we use to protect ourselves from the spirits on our, our first job. Brother Dub and I will uh, set up some uh, pillars and weave a protective ghost net over our little hut 
and then sit down to tea in discussion of the finer points of portal theory. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, go ahead and roll a tune. Let's see how um, quickly you're able to uh, get this up and running. Uh, that's double sixes. Immediately. Uh, you immediately do it. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it doesn't take long. You're actually able to surround the whole c compound uh, rather than just the hut, if you like. Um, so the, the two buildings and the small outbuilding and the well and then the portal uh, are all, uh, you know, under this sort of domed, um, protective arcane net. Uh, and it seems to be holding up pretty well. And there you have it, our own personal lightning wall. Now, what do you think about that membrane? <laughs> so um, the two of you start to fall into a rhythm. Uh, and Dub and, and Gok, you uh, are able to continue to work on making this a habitable place long term. And on the third day you uh sort of like set up uh with like an eye on the portal waiting for it to kind of flare as it did before uh and it doesn't and so uh you cautiously watch it you know waiting waiting for whoever is supposed to come next and the fourth day nothing happens fifth day Nothing happens. Six day, nothing happens. It's a it's a full week before the portal begins to sort of flare up again. Ah, there it goes. <laughs> really? Does it did it have to interrupt services? <laughs> it begins to light up and spark as it did before. The the sort of like weird tentacle border on it begins to writhe and a human form uh is pushed up. Uh, against that, uh, the film, the membrane of the portal. And just before daybreak, Dirkman, you are uh, unceremoniously forced through the membrane and fall uh, onto the ground, covered in a thick ichor. <coughs> that is really unpleasant feeling. Mm. Dirkman, Dirkman. Oh. D hey, D Dirkman, wh uh, who who went into the portal before you? you uh, you you did. Oh, oh, thank Aralax. Okay, all right. Yeah, all yeah, right. yeah. We're not missing. What is who is 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 Brother Dub here? Yes, yes, Dub, Dub. It's Dirkman. It's Brother Dirkman. You finally made it. What is this? Is this? Do you li live here? We live here. Oh. What is happening? Here, we, uh, I, I help Dirkman up and I check him for damage. Uh, sure. And you, uh, eventually find, uh, Dirk, uh, that on Dirkman's back, like, um, spilling over his shoulders and down his back and up his neck, uh, is a, a spiral pattern, not unlike the um, one that's on the side of your face and uh, that uh, covers um, Dub's hand, uh, it, uh, that, that tentacled sort of spiral uh, is burned into, um, burned into his skin and it's red and sort of like angry but completely healed. Good to have you back, Brother Dirkman. 
Looks like you've been blessed as well, and you're just in time for services. Uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll probably need one. I say, looking to the mirror that I hope somebody has set up in the week that you've had since encountering <laughs> this problem. Uh, what I've done is I've taken a bag of uh, of silver coins and like pasted them to a board <laughs> and polished them. Uh, yeah, and I'll join them in services uh, while we await our next comrade. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, I'm going to try to craft some fingers uh, out of out of wood or something, whatever's available. Uh, yeah, you have time. If you're just looking for a prosthetic, then um, you uh, can do that without a roll. If you're looking for them to do special weird things, uh, you can either flash back to that when it's appropriate, or um, uh, roll now to get get see what see what goes on. Uh, yes, uh, I'm I'm going to see if I can get them to be able to help me grip tools and whatever I happen to be working on, uh, try to get some dexterity back onto my hand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's something you have the time to achieve. So, uh, you have time for trial and error as well. Uh, so yeah, you, you definitely get working regular sort of mechanical fingers, uh, as replacement fingers, if you like. These will have to do for now. <laughs> and then... I shall make a prosthetic ear for for my brother if you if he so chooses. Yeah, absolutely. Again, uh you have the time, so uh you you can fashion an ear. Gok does notice occasionally you're staring at the side of his head. <laughs> um uh, trying to to kind of like work the putty that you've you've made uh, into something that resembles his other ear, and uh, but uh, other than that, yeah, you um, you absolutely can make him a prosthetic ear should he want to wear it. Brother Gok, I have a gift for you if 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 you have it. I noticed the blessing of Aralax had uh, taken a part of you. And I made you this, and I hand over this prosthetic ear to uh, uh, Brother Gok. Thank you, Brother Dub. That's so sweet. And I, I take the ear and I like put it in my breast pocket. <laughs> <laughs> now I'll always have something to remember my lost ear by a token <laughs> of the blessing I was given and taken by Aralax. No, 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 no. You're doing it wrong. What? Uh, <laughs> That's what this band is for, you see, and it has a uh, it has a band that goes around to the other ear, and that's what it uses to hold it up. Oh, I I wouldn't want Aralax to think that I was ungrateful for Aralax taking my ear. <laughs> <laughs> Dub looks at his fingers. Well, I need these in order to serve Aralax better. Oh, 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 I no, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to imply that you, I just, according to just my interpretation of the thank, thank you, thank you very much. And I pat the, the like <laughs> lumpy ear in my pocket. <laughs> uh, so the amount of time. That passes. You, you, uh, if you weren't demarcating 
the days you would have you would lose track of how many days it was um, waiting for the next uh, person to come through the portal. And uh, a, an additional week goes by and then another week. And then finally, about 20 days after uh, Dirkman comes through, the portal begins to spark and writhe and you can see a humanoid f- figure about to come through and sister morgan you feel that overwhelming force push you through the the film on the portal uh and you fall out covered in ichor about 20 days after dirkman just before daybreak god damn ow Uh, hello is that sister morgan Sister, hey, Morgan. Sister Morgan, over here. I, I wipe the, the ichor from my eyes and I kind of blink and kind of soak up the scene. And then I kind of writhe a little bit and open up my tunic so that uh, Admiral Quibbles can fly out. <laughs> this flies right through. Uh, <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me, Admiral Quibbles? Well, I wasn't going to leave her. I didn't even think about that. Brother Theodore just said go through the portal and I, and I did. Well, it's a good thing you got me to look after your things for you. Yeah, all right. Good to see you fucking too, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> I I charge down Sister Morgan and like f- fling myself uh, like around her. Oh, honey. Oh, you're getting ichor all over you. Wait, hold on. And I, I like, I'm much stronger than him. So I push him away from me for a second <laughs> so I can get a look at him. And I go, what happened to your face? The blessing of Aralax. I, I bet that you have one too. I guess I'll look around for such a thing. Uh, you actually find a um, burned away skin on your uh, shoulder and upper arm and shoulder blade um, where you felt that burning sensation uh, as you went through the portal. Um, uh, and and it's a similar, it's most similar to Dirkman's, but like if it was moved over to his shoulder. I'll be damned. Oh, and I see. D- d- well, hey, hang on. How long has it been since y'all been here? This is way too much of a setup. Y'all look damn right cozy. Also, uh, we have beards. <laughs> <laughs> Doc doesn't have a, a beard, necessarily. <laughs> uh, by my count, it's since Dub emerged from the portal, it's been 27 days. Damn. Well, we... Gave those blue coats a hell of a fight, that's for damn sure. Theodore called down a goddamn lightning bolt. Just right down on him. Hit the uh, gauntlet I left behind for him, Dub, so I only got the one now. But um, looks like we're we're pretty safe here, so I may not need it. But yeah, uh, I have no doubt at all he had time to get in the portal. You should have seen it. There was It was like a, a chasm made from, from just his connection to Aralax alone. It was something to behold. He is he's truly blessed. I think, I don't know, I guess I feel like we all are. So he's coming back for us? Oh, absolutely. I am I'm 100% sure of it. We just had to wait. Hopefully not longer than 20 days. I might get a little stir-crazy hanging out in here. Y'all looked around the surrounding area yet? Seen if there was anything else besides this structure? Uh, Dirkman definitely did that, but do I have to roll for that to make that true? No. Cool. No, there's plenty of time. All right, yeah. So Dirkman, that was probably the a second day thing while when he was there. Uh, definitely scouted the area and uh, found 
some stuff, I guess. So you definitely uh, did, uh, and um, Gok was able to kind of create a sort of like lift thing where uh, that he, you can kind of like lift it up as if it were like a tent flap in the protective dome uh, thing. And you went out ranging. Uh, and as, the best way to describe it was sort of like... Um, this used to be a relatively heavily populated area with independent, large independent buildings and uh, the remains of what looks like looked like a road of some kind, um, though not made of cobblestones, made of made of like a, a smooth stone um, mixture, maybe. And uh, the the you can mostly tell that these were independent buildings uh, because they're mostly just um, foundations like pits in the earth with like rubble collapsed inside of them. Uh, and they kind of go out in a in a meandering sort of fashion, uh, connecting with other ones. Uh, and as over the 20 days that you've spent sort of um, ranging around, you've you've been able to at least mentally map the area uh, and it looks like it was a bunch of interlocking road of these road type buildings with like these deep large foundations uh, that just go out in two places to one larger smooth rock mixed rock road uh, that goes far in in two directions and and it's super wide much bigger than the than the smaller uh roads in this like building area yeah it's uh it's your basic post-apocalyptic landscape out there uh not a whole lot going on anything anything that's been moving or kind of looking threatening i've been taking care of i say grabbing the stock of my rifle and so we're we're alone out here i know you guys set up a good structure all right, I'm I'm famished. I need to I need to get something to eat, and uh, I, I kind of rummage around in my coat a little bit and smile and pull out a deck of cards, marking off that free load that I have for a deck of cards. <laughs> and I go, anyone want to play a game? I'll play. Yeah, why not? I'm in. I suppose we've earned a little leisure. And you play cards. For many, many days. Um, in between playing card games, you do cultivate um, some mushrooms and some moss and get a little uh, sort of uh, farming patch going on one side of the dome. And uh, you've got a generally livable area that you can, you know, call a safe base of operations. And about two months after... Uh, Morgan come came through the portal when you guys are kind of starting to feel like maybe Theodore didn't make it. Uh, the portal begins to swirl again and writhe. And Theodore, uh, you feel as if you are being just gently ushered through uh, the this icker. Um, and uh, as you go through this film, it wipes clean all of the ichor, uh, and you are able to step out of the portal uh, clean as day. The thing you notice first, or maybe you don't notice, but definitely is noticed first about Theodore's appearance, is that he has lost all of the hair on his head. 
and uh, he has a uh, like that burned spiraling um, tentacled pattern uh, on on the on the top of his head. What a pleasant arcane gate! <laughs> wow, dubbed it remarkably well. <laughs> I think we're all standing outside the portal as you as you step through it. Theodore? Morgan? This is fantastic. It's been about, I think, two, three months since uh, we last saw you. Wow, that's longer than I expected. But I guess we're all here and we're all safe. So that seems totally fine. Gawk is just beaming. <laughs> what a... I look around. What do we do now? At times like these, I find it's helpful to look back to the four tenets. Well, it, it seems like you guys have been being good neighbors to one another. There's no elderly to speak of in this region, I assume. Uh, I can see you're recycling. Compost pile was my idea. That's great, Dirkman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of just leaves the one <laughs> i guess we get to work ushering in the end times that always was the tricky one my eyes move over towards the city of dustfall in the far distance let's burn this fucker down <laughs> theodore you uh see coalescing out of the dirt behind the group a somewhat familiar face. It's not somebody that you've met personally before, but have seen. He is tall uh, with long uh, white hair tied neatly back. He's got a cane and a velvet jacket over neatly tailored uh, clothes. And he says, yes, let's. Uh, and it is uh, the vampire Lord Skurlock standing behind you. Ah. I think I start and instinctively put my feet, my my fists up. Uh, I will step forward. Uh, it is lovely to make your acquaintance, Lord Skurlock. Yes, I'm quite charmed uh, by your little home here. Welcome. I've been waiting. He winks at uh, at Gok. Forgive me if this is a foolish question, but how long? Approximately 847 years. Well, uh, I dare say, Lord Skurlock, that that would make you elderly. <laughs> <laughs> I lower my fists. <laughs> and we would be obliged to help you. As per the tenants, you see, I have a secret. I am the last survivor of the original Church of Aralax. And I have been waiting for my master to raise another set of worthy individuals to bring about the cataclysm that I and my fellows failed to execute properly. I can help you do what I could not. And you'll start with this. And he holds out a very old book. I take it. This was our original text. A how-to 
for the fourth tenant. Choose the method you wish, and should you need me, I'll be here. And he tips his very fine hat and lifts up the little door to the to the dome, sets it back down, and is gone in an instant. Well, I'm certainly going to open the book. I'm like tr- trying to like crane my neck over his shoulder. So the book is a an a text written in just the weirdest handwriting. It looks as if someone has taken Sparkcraft and made a letterpress from it and then written it and made it into a bound book. What a weird idea. It just seems unnecessary. The vernacular in it is filled with words that you don't understand. Um, Things that you can infer mean neat and swell, but instead are like dip and dude. (laughs) (laughs) What a fascinating window into our past. (laughs) They talk about wires and circuitry and atoms and uh, how to mix that with magic and harnessing uh, the spirits of uh, the awakened depths in order to bring about a a cataclysmic event. And you think that with that and the book that Gawk has in his possession, uh, you could bring about a very creative end of the world. And that's where we'll end our series. I stopped jumping in when we moved to local remote because it sounds like yeah. a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to post-game chatter for series 10. We have the whole cast here. We just finished recording the finale of series 10. It was a ton of fun. Uh, And now uh, we're going to spend some time talking a little bit about the system, about the last couple episodes, and just, you know, our general takeaways from this experience. Uh, And then we will move into answering questions submitted by the listeners. Uh, So really quick, because, uh, you know, we were all affecting a certain voice, um, let's go around and have everyone introduce themselves and who they were playing in their normal voice so that the listeners can make sure they know who's talking when they're talking. I will start. My name is Tommy. You know my voice pretty well, but I was playing Sister Morgan. I'm Covert, and I was playing Brother Dub. I'm Dan. I was playing Brother Theodore, which is kind of a lot like me, but... Just a little bit different. I'm Seth. I was playing Brother Dirkman. That's I also kind of sound the same, just a little bit less angry. And I'm Sean. I played Brother Gawk, who definitely sounds a lot like I did 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm Addie. I was the GM. I sounded like me most of the time. (laughs) Except distinctly when you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, does anyone have anything that they're they're dying to talk about about the last couple episodes or about the system in general? Anything uh, like bubbling at the surface that you want to get out right now? Now that we just finished recording, ghost nuke. 
<laughs> We're gonna make a ghost nuke. <laughs> We're make a ghost nuke. Yeah, that was a really interesting episode. I, I I wasn't actually sure how the last episode was gonna work since we really only planned up to getting to the Deathlands, and so it was both Sister Morgan and myself asking the question, "What next?" <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, technically, within the scope of um, Blades in the Dark. You would have, by going through the portal, completed the job, uh, which means that we would have gone into like the the payoff and then downtime. But I didn't think that that was really necessarily the best uh, ending to the series. So I decided to extend the job a little further uh, and and sort of do a free play uh, end to the series, which you guys could have gotten into a fight. Who knows? Who knows what you're doing out in the Deathlands? But, um, but I wanted to get you started on what will be the church's next adventure. Well, it was it was definitely a, a, a ton of fun. And uh, and how about uh, we didn't get to chat about episode nine at all. We don't do words with the GM during episode 10. Uh, and episode nine was where the 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 a lot of the, the action and the climax of the season was. Um, so how did everyone feel about their performance in uh, in the last two episodes, specifically during that harrowing ninth episode? I really liked the the imagery of us holding that pagoda while uh, we got our our shit together for the ritual. It was it was a great like cinematic idea for a last stand. Oh yeah, that's I had a ton of fun with that. Just listening to everything and imagining everything going on all at once and arguing with uh, Brother Theodore. I thought that was good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think it makes it into the episode, but there was a point um, when Addie was looking up a rule when uh, Dan turned to the rest of the cast and was like, really quick poll. How many of us were planning on being the one who stayed behind uh, to make sure everyone else made it through safely? And like all of us raised our hands. And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> and we were, Then I think it was Sean was like, yeah, I think Theodore needs to command the troops at this point. Yeah. And then the best part of it is Covert goes... I was going to volunteer to go first. (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of fun. I I liked The Last Stand. It was exciting and cool. Yeah, this system does lend itself to very cinematic scenes, to to a lot of description of how you're doing what you're doing. Because even just, like, I think I did not roll a skill other than a tune the entire episode 9 and 10. But every time I did, it was it looked different. Yeah, let's let's transition into talking a little bit about the the system and uh, how everyone kind of uh, enjoyed it. How you enjoyed playing your your character, things you did, didn't like that kind of bit. Uh, our usual question we go around uh, and ask everyone is: Would you recommend this system uh, for someone else, or would you play it again? I want to run this. I think this would be right up my. Uh open world, make shit up as you go kind of uh, GMing style. And especially with the players being able to flash back, it seems to lend itself well to sandbox type games and just giving your players a lot of agency and just kind of rolling with it. Um, that's how I like to run my games. Uh, I will go to bat for Blades in general. Uh, I love flashbacks. It's one of my favorite mechanics in a game ever. And uh, I love the kingdom building aspect where you're you don't only have your character. You also have the crew, which has a character sheet as well. 
and so like the team and their criminal empire grows as you grow uh i like that harm is long lasting uh i i like uh the kind of trauma mechanic where your characters get like more burdened as the longer they play there's like a natural like the way the life of crime kind of beats you down yeah and uh the kind of narrative uh freedom that really everybody is given like where i can just kind of say what like how i want to use a skill and it's usually valid so i'll start mine with i think Blades in the Dark is a well-designed system that does everything it sets out to do pretty well. And what it sets out to do is sort of antithetical to everything I really enjoy in RPGs. I had fun playing with you guys. Like, I like playing RPGs with my friends, even if I don't necessarily like the system. But, like, on this one, I don't think I would play Blades in the Dark again. Like, flashbacks, uh, to me, again, like, I get why they're there. And I think they're well done. But every time we would be in the middle of a tense situation and the game is like telling you like, no, don't think of a plan, get to there and then tell me how you already dealt with this feels like it has taken something away from me as a player to like have the freedom to try and figure out what I'm going to run into and then plan for that. That was something that I was like consistently frustrated by as we were running through the system. And it's not anything about like the game being bad. It's just, like personal preference what it wants to do is not a game that's like super super great for me generally yeah coming coming from like a, a shadowrunny background i imagine uh it's it, it definitely was hard for me to transition into letting go of that kind of impetus for legwork at the beginning of like a job we're like okay let's like think of all the different options. Let's come up with a really intricate plan and like make all these precautions so that we can execute everything flawlessly. And Blaze in the Dark wants to throw you in the action immediately and then let you uh, retroactively have plan for it, which is really, really cool. But uh, I, since I've played so much Shadowrun in the past, it definitely took me a while to get used to not thinking of everything ahead of time and having to like be like... I'll just, I'll roll with it. Everything's just, I got to wing everything. And the cool thing is I'm allowed to wing it because I can, uh, I, the character, the player may be winging it, but my, my character has obviously planned for this. Uh, so that's definitely like a, a learning curve and a, a thing that makes it a little, a little, uh, different for me. I think I ultimately like the system. It's, it's a little strange for me. It's definitely, I think my, my feelings on it are muddied because it's, it's, definitely hard to run it on uh at least this podcast if not podcasts in general the type of gameplay we try to showcase like where you you know we're always in character and you don't break character to talk about like the mechanics of the game as as much as possible and you and you don't like talk about things in like the macro scale you just live in the scenes uh there's so much of blades in the dark that like is is supposed to be like pulling back and like flashbacks alone are hard to do it's like when is it interesting to flash back and do a scene and when is it interest and when is it not interesting and like how do you flashback and just like say the thing that you did while still trying to present the same kind of gameplay we typically do on essential NPCs uh so that was definitely like uh, a point of of tension between me and the system moving forward was having to be more okay with like a broader 
uh, spectrum of table chatter, which, you know, again, not an issue when you're not on this podcast in particular, <laughs> you know, sitting around and talking about plans ahead of time and being like, okay, cool. We're all on the same page. Let's do it. This is how we do it. I flash back and this is what we did ahead of time. Like, it's a lot of like, there's, there's, it's a game that both encourages really, really interesting narrative choices uh, while also encouraging a healthy amount of, of uh, table chatter and like player on player strategizing instead of character on character strategizing. Yeah, it's cinematic. It's action oriented. A lot of what you say is describing what your character does. Yeah. And uh, it, it's true that essential NPCs, which is like so interpersonal, like character driven normally, like it, it felt like I, you know, I had to do real work to like fit two person scenes in yeah. where it's just two people talking to one another. I think I think the time where it most uh, shown for like role play versus uh, like the essential NPC style role play versus uh, the blades in the dark usual like dealing with, uh, you know, the downtime and the bookkeeping and stuff like that was when uh, when Dirkman and Morgan had their day out and they like did their mm-hmm. downtime activities together because uh, yeah. it, it, it felt like a fun little like buddy cop. We do this thing like we, you know, watch each other like do good at our jobs. <laughs> and, and that was pretty fun. Yeah, I, I definitely like the system as a player. I don't GM a whole lot, but I can imagine, I can see the ways it would be frustrating. But I do like that it's a. it seems like a pretty well put together world and then everything is just kind of a suggestion for you to, for you to bounce off of and, and make your own. Oh, and I'll also say I fucking love clocks. They're so great. Oh yeah, clocks oh, are yeah. a good mechanic, yeah. Uh, yeah, I use, I use stealth in my D&D. I use stealth clocks for stealth in my D games all the time because i hate like oh you fail you got caught what would you call what did you describe the setting as uh sean did you call it ghost punk yeah ghost punk yeah. <laughs> i love it so much <laughs> it's like creepy steampunk and so dark and uh just i i enjoyed every minute of it and what about you addy how did it feel in the gm chair uh, so I actually played in a game uh, that Sean ran of Blades in the Dark uh, a little while ago. So I've actually had the privilege of seeing what happens behind the screen and in front of it. Um, and I definitely would say that I I had fun playing for sure. And um, jury's still out on whether I actually had fun GMing. <laughs> um, it's not... Uh, it, it was certainly a challenge for me because it's not traditional game running, as far as I can tell. Um, it's a lot of description and then what do you do? There's not really, uh, as a GM, unless something is physically impossible, like I would like to fly into the air right now uh, with, you know, just by the powers of my mind or something like that. Uh, there's not really, a, there's not really, the GM isn't super empowered to say, no uh like no you can't do that or that's impossible uh it's always well let's see how you do um and it's more of a conversation you're supposed to encourage the meta there's a lot of um bookkeeping uh that's outside the narrative play uh and uh while i would 100 play this game again i never felt super confident um sitting in the gm's chair I struggled to not be the active driver in the story to to set the scene and then uh, react more than uh, than 
urge the characters on, uh, which is cool. And I really like that sandboxy feel. And I do try to do that in other games. Um, but being the leader of a conversation rather than the proprietor of the world uh, was was a tough spot for me. And I would have to really sit down and sketch out what I wanted out of another game if I was going to run it. Um, so, so that like my expectations as a GM returning to the table for this system would be better met. It definitely feels like a, a system that might benefit people who haven't played RPGs before because they don't have the preconceived notions of how like traditional RPGs run, right? So like you just kind of, if you were able to take it as a clean slate, then it's like, oh, this is just what GMing is. Oh, this is just what like playing is, right? And you don't have to think like, oh, well, I need to plan for everything. I need to be prepared for this dungeon. I need to be prepared for this shadow run, that kind of thing. Yeah, genre familiarity would be much more helpful than tabletop game literacy yeah. in this game. But let's bring it back around to the campaign specifically. One thing that we uh, dropped in this new format for Series 10 is Addie and I didn't really ever do favorite parts. We used to end every Words with a GM with a favorite parts converse, uh, comparison between Addie and I. We'd talk about the previous episode and we'd say what uh, what we liked best in it, whether it was like a particular player moment or a general story moment or a system moment. Um, uh, so to keep that tradition a little bit alive in series 10, uh, we're going to do what we usually do during post-game chatter and we're going to go through all of the players and Addy, uh, to have everyone say what their favorite part from the whole, uh, campaign was, uh, it could be something that you did, something that another player did, something that happened over the course of a couple episodes, just really any part at all. I would give it to, uh, the end of the church job, uh, when, uh, two of us took trauma. Uh, both of us went on uh, a fun little journey. Uh, but I think uh, Brother Theodore's journey takes the cake. <laughs> the little meeting with, with Aralax is truly transcendental. Uh, and I love the idea of like when you get knocked out, like when you take like massive damage, when you get hurt on a score, you come back changed fundamentally like like you took what what trauma did you take vicious yeah it took vicious yeah and i took unstable which was like it's great because now i have like a concrete there is a concrete change in both of our characters and now we get to play the same character with a spin like with a twist and i love i love it when a system gives me that sitting here recording and watching addy try to get through the sentence I'm proud of you, goo child, is maybe one of my favorite moments of this entire podcast. <laughs> I was so close. I was so close. I, I had to mute myself because I couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> uh, for me, rocket powered body cart. <laughs> the cart the Swiss, so many Swiss body cart. Yeah. Just yeah. every time you're like, here's another thing I added to this, <laughs> this wagon. <laughs> Yes, the Swiss Army gurney. <laughs> the the part that sticks in my head, uh, just description wise and action wise, I can't get over killing Sister Daphne. I think that was just such like a good 
scene of all of us just kind of like popping up together out of the shadows and being like, Sister Daphne, we're so disappointed in you. And then like brutally murdering her. You stole that from me. That was going to be my favorite part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was, uh, it was cause there was the moment, like I was the lie detector. Right. And, yeah. and so like I had to make a decision right then, like, what do I want to do? And do I think everyone will go with me on this? Like, I really wasn't sure. Like maybe I was going to grab her, but I didn't, I wasn't a hundred percent sure that like the thing I was intending was going to follow through, but we were all 100% on the same page. Right. And it was, it was fantastic because it was like the moment that we, f- we became a cult for real <laughs> <laughs> because I'm sure Daphne had a lot more story to tell, but we had heard what we needed to hear. She was asked if she was still a member of the cult and her answer because of the lie detection her answer was no. And we were like, that's enough for us. You're dead. <laughs> yeah, I was completely shocked by that. I did not. I had there's so much story that nobody got because I had a whole thing. And uh, and like I I thought maybe there would be like a struggle or something. And you were like, nope, dead. And I was like, what? Wow. I didn't. Cool. Good job. I what? Okay. <laughs> it, it was uh, so it was, tense and so satisfying. <laughs> it yeah. was great. Uh, as a GM, I was truly surprised at it, how swift it was, and I think you could hear it in my voice where I'm like, "You, you do." <laughs> um, so my favorite moment was uh, just an entire scene of playing uh, Attican, the crazy guy in the like crystal hut. Um, <laughs> was just like a nutter and um uh i was like i need a gm fiat real quick haha i figured it out and then this like wackadoodle just appeared out of my brain and and i had no control and it was amazing it was really really fun uh to just be like well i don't know what's going on but neither does he so let's Mm. figure it out together (laughs) yeah i love when he would forget what he was talking about like two seconds later that was great (laughs) yeah if uh if essential npcs were to continue attican would definitely fall into essential npc status (laughs) altogether there's tons of amazing moments throughout this uh this campaign but we have a ton of questions from the listeners so uh we're gonna pull those up and answer some questions thank you everybody for sending in your questions we are about to answer all of them uh so buckle your safety belts uh and our first set of questions comes from joe Joe asks, what did everyone think of their playbooks? And would you have made any changes to your crew or characters or even tried another style? No, I I wanted cult. I wanted to make a weird mechanical dude. And I wanted to blow shit up. I, I got what I wanted. Yeah, you checked all those boxes. <laughs> uh, I, I liked my playbook a lot. Um, but I kind of went halvesies. I, I, did a, I started off with slide and then we got some pre-recording xp which i spent on some slide stuff and then some cutter stuff and then throughout the duration of the uh campaign from there i think i put all of my like skills into slide stuff but then all of the talents i picked up were cutter things like being able to fight a bunch of people at once or be super intimidating after i hurt somebody (laughs) I also multi-classed. The name at the top of my playbook is Whisper, but I took a ton of Lurk stuff, uh, including a really cool ability called Ghost Veil, which lets me paste uh, stress to turn into a ghost. I can walk through walls, disappear, and fly, and uh, it just never came up. I just never needed to use it. 
Uh, I like the Mastermind playbook a lot, but I think just the nature of it being a short season and us being very focused on accomplishing our one extremely specific goal. Um, a lot of the mastermind moves that I could have picked up were like, if you get put in jail, you're better at being in jail. Or when you do legwork, you're better at legwork. But they were things that just weren't going to come up during the season just because of the nature of the podcast. Um, but if there is a talent in any game that lets me shoot a bolt of lightning or conjure a storm, <laughs> I'm all about it. <laughs> well, I really liked being a, being a hound. I think that was the one that I had my eye on pretty much from the beginning. So I was kind of glad that it lined up that way. Um, Cause I don't usually play like the sniper overwatch characters. Uh, actually I was looking into doing either the lurk or the slide as well, just cause I usually don't, I don't know. It's it's combat forward is weird for me. So I was I was glad to get outside my box. Joe also asks, I didn't hear any leveling up talk, but I know you bank XP pretty fast in Blades in the Dark. So what did those sweet, sweet points go towards? Did anyone branch out into other playbooks? And did the crew gain any neat upgrades or claims? Blowing shit up gooder. <laughs> yeah, we talked a little bit about how we multi-classed a bit. Um, but as far as the crew goes, we actually did pick up a few. Um, we didn't we didn't go for like claims or territory or anything like that, mostly because of the the kind of restricted narrative we put ourselves in to fit the format of the podcast. It wasn't the, our crew wasn't interested in picking up turf. Uh, or gaining long-term reputation or anything like that. But we did uh, we get, did the thing that we narrated as like us getting eye drops, which let us look at like see ghost structures and use them. I think we stole that from actually not the cult playbook. We stole that from the shadows playbook. He also asks, how do you compare Blades against some of the other systems you've played, particularly the other looser narrative kinds of games like Uncharted Worlds? This one especially has a really solid like world already built, whereas I feel like some of the games like Uncharted Worlds, you can really just kind of do anything and make up your own background. But like the history of Duskfall and the different areas is like so solid. And also we kind of like understand what steampunk is and adding the ghost element to it. Like it's it's pretty intuitive. So I feel like that's that's the main difference. It's like you actually have something to build up from rather than just inventing the entire thing yourself. Uh, Joe's next question is, what do you think of the strict organization of playtime into score, downtime, free play, repeat? Uh, is it restrictive or board gamey or does it help move the story along in neat pieces or something in between? It definitely gives it some structure to something that is freeform and putting mechanics in place really gives it that kind of heist feel uh, of planning the heist, executing it, and then recovering from it uh, after you've pulled it off. So it is freeform, but it is nice to have that little bit of structure, uh, especially to fit mechanics in that makes sense for what you are doing. Uh, I'll, I'll offer a counterpoint on that one. Um, where I think like the structure of it is nice, but at times it does feel a little restrictive in the way it tells you sort of exactly when you move into those zones, even if it doesn't necessarily feel like it makes the most sense for the story. And I think Addy brought that up 
in, in sort of the 10th episode where rules is written. Once we're through that portal, we're supposed to go into, you know, the, the payoff or the, the score, I think it is of like, what did you guys all get from that? How much coin or rep or turf or whatever, um, instead of just going to what felt like the most natural storytelling part of it, which was what happens after the portal. <laughs> and I, I felt a little restricted by it, not like painfully so, but yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a riff on the Apocalypse World like core gameplay loop uh, as designed. Um, and it's focused and it's exactly as covert said it's designed for like uh doing uh criminal scores one right after another uh and i think you could break another game down into something like this like uh even like D D has a difference between the way time is structured uh between like travel like on an adventure in combat like back at home for downtime but it's just not spelled out in the rules so the next question is actually for me uh for addy did you plan out many of the scores locations or npcs or did you at some point throw up your hands and say f it i'll make it up during the session there is definitely a like reactive improvisational element to GMing Blades in the Dark because it is the impetus to carry the story forward is a lot on the goals of the players and what happens to them and their roles. I didn't plan any of the heists. I gave them the poem at the beginning, which you guys heard, and then was like, this could be anything that you guys think. Uh, if you guys can't think of something, you can roll. Have me tell you what an applicable situation is. And so uh, when they were like, we think this drop of water is Leviathan blood. And I was like, cool, I guess we're going to go find some Leviathan blood. Where would we find that? Um the, the world and a lot of the NPCs are already built in. You can create more, which I did, um, but uh, it's sort of a mix of both for sure. A lot, I think most of the planning um, as a GM comes from building out the world pre, pre-campaign and also after each score, there's a, a sort of like the world reacts Thing that the GMs do behind the screen like oh they attacked this well what's the fallout of that what are the ripple effects okay so they'll see that next time they interact with any one of these different factions but as far as planning goes it's a lot more about really knowing the world um, or the world as you want to tell it rather than they're going to go into this house it's a stack it's a two-story building here are the points of uh, you know egress etc etc to answer your question it's a little bit of both there's a little bit of effort in there for sure. <laughs> and then Joe says, talk about them clocks. Good, bad, helpful, cluttering because I made too many. Did they affect how you played or GM'd? Uh, I'll throw it in right now that like uh, clocks are something that I did before I knew that clocks existed in this game. I did, uh, you know, it's sort of like, what is the threshold that they have to meet before X happens or before this is caused? Um, I actually think there's a really good example of that in season one of the of the podcast. I don't remember if we ta- ended up talking about it in one of the words with the GM, but I remember you telling me after the fact that uh, when we were interrogating that guard, that corrupt guard captain, 
um, we kept choosing different approaches Mm -hmm. and you were logging how many different successes we got on each approach. uh, And we had to like keep, we had to like do that approach like two times or three times successfully to get the information we needed. And we as players didn't realize that was what was going on. So we tried it once each time and then it didn't work each time. The first try we thought. And so then we just, we, I think Seth broke her knee and things got out of hand. <laughs> but that's kind of a great illustration of why, like why clocks are done as they are in blades. The clocks are revealed. They're like, rev- most of them are revealed to the players. So they know they're making progress. They know like, narratively like what to push on or like uh how hard they're gonna have to push like eight ticks to uh talk this person down let's try something different yeah uh and and clocks and just in general um the it's really open book season uh for a lot of uh blades in the dark as a gm there's not a whole lot you're hiding um uh, you know, there's there's not really a huge purpose for a full GM screen and like not showing your hand and all that stuff because uh, there is a lot of that like meta game and and non in character stuff that that that's part of the conversation that's intrinsic to the game. Um, so clocks showing those clocks in any game would be helpful, especially if like uh, especially if you've got. Um, players who aren't really sure of your GMing style and how you sort of grade success and failure. Uh, whereas uh, now when we play D&D, um, you know, I still don't show my hand, but my players know that there's thresholds that they have to go. And like, if something <laughs> doesn't happen immediately, doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to immediately break people's knees. <laughs> <laughs> so the next question is... Are there any elements of the game mechanics or setting that you really like or don't like or something you didn't get to use over the course of the podcast? We've kind of touched on some aspects of the systems that work for us and don't work for us. Um, We also even talked a little bit about like some of the abilities we didn't get to bring to bear. But I guess one thing we didn't necessarily we haven't necessarily talked about is aspects of the setting that we really like or don't really appeal to us. Um, so, uh, let's focus on that part of the question. Anyone have anything about the setting, uh, that is really cool to them or, or kind of like throws them off? So the setting for me is, is, uh, problematic. I really enjoy the, the, all of the really cool and intricate ways that the setting works with each other and, you know, ghosts. And, and I really love that, like when somebody dies, like a bell rings and it's like a big deal and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I, I think the like real world is already getting kind of like, dour and like a little (laughs) depressed Uh, and so like uh, in my RPGs um, at least recently they've been a little bit more happy Um, and uh, and so for me Blades in the Dark isn't the right attitude at the moment I do enjoy it but uh, but I think that it's gonna go on the back burner for a little while until things get to a summerier place (laughs) on the contrary I like ghosts and shit (laughs) Uh, I'd always liked the steampunk kind of setting. Uh, I haven't, I haven't consumed a whole lot of media of it, uh, but I like the, I like the idea of like alternate technology, uh, uh, seeing how things could have been. 
I mean, obviously, uh, steampunk's a lot more fantastical than that, but it's still fun for me. And I've always been, had an interest in the occult and ghosts and spooky stuff. So seeing it actually become a part of technology and actually seeing how people adapt to that as part of their daily life and using something that we might see as completely horrible to their advantage, that's just that's just really cool to me. That's a really good way to look at it. Also ghosts, because they're spooky. Okay, fine. <laughs> Walls of lightning. <laughs> yeah, I like the I like how everything is contained in like this pressure cooker. Uh, where like leaving the even leaving the city took us a ten episode arc to accomplish. Uh, so you have this nested interlocking uh, web of factions, uh, and there's no real lying low while the heat dies down. You can't leave the city, and I think that makes for really interesting si- situations. And Joe's last question is: um, there are like a hundred hacks of blades in the dark out there now in different settings or genres has anybody played any of them what did you think i don't i don't think any of us have actually uh had a chance to play any of those uh various like blades in the dark uh, forged in the dark um systems uh though i know one that caught my eye for sure was band of blades uh that one seems like really interesting because it by the design of the game, the game straight up tells you like this campaign that you're about to play has an end. Uh, it's you're like on a journey from like point A to point B. And if and like you either make it to point B or die. And that's like that's the whole thing. And like once you get to once you get to like the castle at the end, that's the end of your campaign. There's no more to it. I'm not 100 percent sure about the theme of it, but it feels very berserk and very like uh uh, Bloodborne and Dark Souls, and I just I'm I'm very interested in it, and I want to try it out sometime. Our next question comes from Gordon, who asks, "Whose character or NPC other than your own would you like to have played?" Sister Morgan. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> she punches stuff real good, and that was awesome. Uh, I probably would have wanted to play uh, Attican. <laughs> just be a, be a real party really he's, a, he's a motherfucker of a character he's great he's a hoot actually i think yeah going into that like into the the well of contacts that we have had i think i would have liked to play the guy who was gox therapist oh yeah was, like, absolutely he was like constantly <laughs> struggling with a ghost that was like also in his body and like his accent kept changing yeah. as he was like trying to like have a singular personality for when he was dealing with gawk I really liked that character. <laughs> I would like to play Brother Theodore. I I love that character, and uh, I've always wanted to try the Spider Playbook. Uh, on that note, I wouldn't trade. <laughs> <laughs> you son of a bitch! That's not the question. You have to onboard. <laughs> there, like, sorry, Gordon. There really weren't other characters that I wanted to inhabit or play as. Uh, Brother Theodore is like a fun character that is near and dear to like mine and Addie's heart. And when she told me we were going to play the cult of many tentacles for, uh, blades in the dark, I was like, there's only one character I'm playing. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what if you could have played Aralax? 
Oh, that would be presumptuous, and I would never. <laughs> and that's why you're the goo child. <laughs> All right, our next set of questions come from Alan. First question from Alan, was the plan for the missing cult member to always be Sister Daphne? If not, was that member supposed to be a reserve character in case someone took too much trauma? The the plan for the missing cult member, I had narrowed it down to uh, one of two people, um, and uh, both of them were, were ritualists that were on a sort of sheet of paper that I gave the guys at the beginning uh, of the campaign, and it became clearer as things went on that it, Sister Daphne was the only person who had even been featured uh, in the conversations about past members uh and so she became the the only real option uh instead of being like ha- instead of having someone who's like boo i was part of the cult too remember me ha um <laughs> but to address the other uh part of your question um there wasn't a reserve character uh if someone uh got four traumas or uh, died, uh, there was going to be no replacement. That's why we had five uh, players this time instead of the usual four, because if we lost somebody or two people, we'd still have enough to continue playing. Yeah, we had joked about at the beginning about how like, you know, a couple of us were going to die really early on. And then eventually it was just going to be Dan as brother Theodore at the end, (laughs) just surviving. (laughs) And then I leveled them up too high and they kept rolling six. (laughs) Uh, The next uh, the next question from Alan is. Having not heard episode 9 or 10 yet, do you think the Church of Many Tentacles eventually accomplishes its goal of bringing on the end times? We have a we have a cookbook for it now. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I have faith in us. I, I mean, we're, we're in a suburb of Duskfall. We're going to make it a really nice neighborhood. Skurlock's going to keep bringing a bunch of uh, a bunch of people from the city for us. We're going to have a nice little suburb out there where we make a nuke and then we nuke everyone. We're going to build a ghost <laughs> nuke in our mom's basement, just like a good anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> the next set of questions from Alan uh, have to do with uh, the Essential NPCs podcast as a whole, not just series 10. Um, so for everyone, uh, what systems would you have liked to play or GM had the podcast continued? I would have liked to get a shot at Uncharted Worlds. I wasn't able to make it for the recordings, um, but it seems like a fun system and there's so many different character options, uh, just the way it's set up. Uh, I would have really wanted to play Tefra, but not GM it. (laughs) <laughs> play it for sure yeah absolutely uh, like you know not to not to like put you on the spot seth or anything but they're like seth sometimes listens to the seasons like as they're airing and sometimes listens to them later um you know he, but like when it was tefra that was on every time a new episode came out i got a text from seth <laughs> that was talking to me about how much he fucking loved that episode yep. <laughs> and it was it was incredibly <laughs> validating for me <laughs> i fucking like, love the temper season it, it, oh, it was great i would have loved to play D. it's sort of my it's like the home cooking of rpgs for me i'm always up to play D, um and also run it because it's the one that i could 
quote the rule book backwards and forwards without looking at it. <laughs> um, and then also like, I always want more seasons of Shadowrun forever. So, <laughs> yep. I know for me, there were two that I was really pulling for, for the vote that we had. Um, the, the first one was uh, leverage. There's a cipher <laughs> system uh, like leverage, the television show, uh, which I love. Um, and Dan is the only other person who I think loves it as much as me. Um, <laughs> I will second leverage until the end of time for the NPCs <laughs> season 11. <laughs> um, and uh Leverage is kind of like the happy version of Blades in the Dark, really. Um, it's just a bunch of scores against, you know, the 1% or whatever. And it would be really great. And I was, I would be pretty excited to run that uh, and learn the cipher system, something I swore I would never do. <laughs> and um, the, <laughs> the other one was Fate because it's such a cool system. And I love the aspects and, and fudge dice and all that. And it's really, it's really a fun time. And I, I love any uh, system that has like a currency, like, like Fate points or manifests grit. And I was like toying with the idea of what we might do for fate. And um, well, well after the uh, the vote happened, it I, it occurred to me that it was definitely we should have done Avatar: The Last Fate Bender, um, <laughs> and uh, and done like the the Avatar Legend of Korra world uh, and like with bending, and it would have been really fun. Uh, and I'd love to see us do that in the future if we ever are uh, have the opportunity to come back. Uh, it's crazy that you mentioned that because I literally have like I I I ran a one shot of that exact thing. I ran a a one shot of Fate in Republic City. Oh, uh, nice! And it was great. Uh, it's really good. Uh, yeah, Fate would also have been my answer. I would have liked to run Fate. Uh, next question is for me. Um, if the podcast were to ever resume, would you be interested in GMing the newest edition of Shadowrun? So uh, the short answer to that is yes, absolutely. I haven't had a chance to play Shadowrun 6th edition yet. Um, I did manage to grab a book at Gen Con, uh, and I haven't fi finished reading it, you know, cover to cover yet. Um, but uh, it it definitely seems really interesting. And I could I could talk for a really long time about like the merits of 6th edition versus 5th edition and all that goodness. Um, but in general, uh, basically, uh, like it's a game I want to play. I haven't had a chance to play it yet. And if the podcast was still going on, I think one thing we would absolutely have done would have been like, you know, three Patreon episodes or something like that. Like a, a very short little like, you know, EMPCs tries six edition Shadowrun and we do like kind of a just a, a quick go of it and and kind of have a little report for it after the fact. Next question from Alan. Uh, since the podcast is effectively ending, would you be willing or able to post raw, unproduced or previously unusable content, specifically the series eight bonus episodes, which weren't posted due to lack of time um, or the series seven uh, bonus episodes, which were deemed unusable. We actually uh, talked about this a little bit, uh, and then your question came up, so now we're going to answer it. Uh, so the Series 8 bonus episodes, the reason that, uh, that which is uh, Star Wars, the reason that we didn't post them um, was because by the time that we got around to producing them, uh, they, they were, uh, it would have been too obvious who was behind the mask. Uh, and so uh, at that time, we decided that uh, it was too late to have released them, but it is something 
something that we are definitely interested in doing and looking into for sure. Uh, but for the Series 7 stuff, for 7th C, those are lost to time and space. Um, they are completely gobbledygook. Uh, so <laughs> unfortunately, we we can't uh, release those ones. Yeah, the Series 7 stuff was because of technical issues, whereas the Series 8 stuff was just, you know, production issues, issues yeah. which <laughs> now that there's no production it's less of an issue. <laughs> Next question from Alan is, as fans and writers of Shadowrun, uh, do you have any thoughts on the mechanics, uh, the mechanics changes brought on by the new edition? Yeah, I'll, I'll start it off there because um, uh, I already kind of talked about how I have thoughts on 6th edition and 5th edition. Um, Dan has actually read more of the 6th edition rulebook than I have for sure. But what I can tell, like objectively, from the sixth edition rulebook, and I, you know, I think any any amount of like research into it will, you know, prove this. Uh, the sixth edition core book has some editorial issues. Just that's just a, a problem that it has out the gate. Um, how, like how much of a narrata was released with the core book at Gen Con, Dan? Uh, it was ten pages. Yeah. So, so yeah, it comes out with like a 10 page rata that's like, oh, we didn't mean to leave that paragraph in here. We dropped like this very, very important phrasing that like completely changes the context of this entire section and, and stuff like that. So just right out the gate, sixth edition is in a, in a weak position because the, the core book is just a little bit of an editorial mess. Uh, I personally think that the intentions and uh uh like ideas behind the changes they made in sixth edition are like correct i think they did like like the things they want to achieve with sixth edition are the right next step for Shadowrun. um it's just i i'm not 100 percent sure that they executed it flawlessly at this point what do you think dan i think in in talking through your much more measured reading of of shatter and sixth edition i've come to sort of a similar conclusion i am not super jazzed about some of the things that they have done but having not had the chance to play it yet i reserve my final judgment what i will say they've clearly sort of hitched the whole thing to their new edge system and without having been able to play that i think my my sort of current judgment on it is if that works out well in play for our group, 6th edition is fine and maybe even a success. And if that doesn't work out well for our group, it's kind of a, a, a dud for at least our play group. And as the person who actually does some catalyst writing, um, I will say... Hasn't written any of 6th edition I yet. haven't written any 6th edition. <laughs> I have seen some 6th edition stuff. I did see the alpha version of the rules uh, and gave some feedback. Um, and uh, I do think that uh, the intention behind it, and this is just from me, not from Catalyst, uh, disclaimer, uh, that... Um, that uh, cattle, like the the Shadowrun team is trying to uh, move with the trend of RPGs and making Shadowrun more accessible to people who are just starting out um, and also making it fewer roles accomplish more um, and and sort of being able to have a one page character sheet. And I think that those are all good and strong steps. 
Um, I do think that with time, they're going to be releasing a bunch of supplementary material, which I think is going to be really strong. Um, and so even if the alleged editorial changes coming with the, the second printing of the core book, if, if they don't make it so it's a perfect uh, core book, I think that in a year's time, Shadowrun 6th edition will be in a really strong place. Alan's next question is related tangentially to Shadowrun. Is anyone on the cast into the cyberpunk RPG? If so, have you looked into Cyberpunk Red? I am waiting for it to come out. I didn't get to make it to Gen Con to get the uh, demo, but I've been following it pretty closely, especially with the uh, with the video game coming out. I'm super excited for it. Yeah, I got my hands on the Jumpstart kit. Um, I haven't had a chance to uh, sink my teeth into it completely, but at a glance, uh, it looks pretty great. I, I haven't, uh, I've never played any of the the old cyberpunk games, so I'm, I'm excited to try it out. Uh, and Alan's final question is, does the trend of synergy between tabletop RPGs and their video game counterparts push you to play both, or would you rather prefer one over the other? Um, like, Covert said the the video game for Cyberpunk is actually the reason why Cyberpunk kind of caught my eye. I knew that Cyberpunk existed, but I was I was always a Shadowrun boy, you know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't need two Cyberpunk RPGs in my life, but that like the video game just looks so phenomenal, and I'm super excited to play it. When that game comes out, my life ends. Um, <laughs> And and so because of that, I'm looking at the RPG, not as a replacement to Shadowrun, because Shadowrun has magic and Cyberpunk doesn't. And that's just always going to be a barrier that, <laughs> that, <laughs> that will keep Shadowrun in my life. Um, but even still, like uh, I never would have even considered picking up the Jumpstart kit for Cyberpunk Red uh, if it weren't for my uh, strong excitement for the video game. On the contrary, knowing about Cyberpunk 2020 and its predecessors and... Uh hearing about those actually made me excited about the video game and seeing that come to life. I never got a chance to play it, but I'd always like, I'd always looked into it and wanted to play it, but we, we already had a cyberpunk genre game going. So it just wasn't something I ever brought up to the gaming group. Yeah. I think if both products are good, I'm going to be excited about both of them. I have a maybe controversial opinion um, that uh, there's been a trend recently in the RPG like publishing community of like, this is a cool world. We should make an RPG out of it. And I think that not everything should be uh, made into an RPG. <laughs> the most recent example is the Carnival Row is coming out with a new tailor-made um, RPG. And uh, it might be really good because that's a really cool, robust world. But at the same time, like, it seems like all of these new systems are coming out. And there are a lot of them based on IPs that exist already. And I, I think that RPGs are a story building device. And movies and video games and books and all that are storytelling devices. Um, and I don't think that they always translate wonderfully. Some of them do and some of them don't. Um, and so for me, just because something is a cool video game, that doesn't mean I want to play the RPG. And sometimes if it's a cool RPG, that doesn't mean I want to go watch the Dungeons and Dragons movie. <laughs> you don't want to see Jeremy Irons act as hard as he can in that movie he's far <laughs> too good for. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> so our next questions come from Catton. 
first question is, what was your overall opinion of the system? Um, so we actually kind of went over that already. Uh, but generally, we're all kind of have a bunch of different opinions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, his second question is, do you feel like this system lends itself to long-term play or episodic play more in the vein of what you've done, uh, with the season? I think if you played the same game over too long of a period, I could see it getting stale, but I would be very open to playing multiple different campaigns within the, uh, span of a uh, long campaign. Uh, I, I think having played through this, um, I think it lends itself to long games or long campaigns. If you're essentially playing as kind of almost a rotating cast of members of the same crew, because there's so many things in this game that straight up say like, you're gone until the end of the next downtime or, or something along those lines that, um, I think you can certainly play a long campaign, but you got to be ready to say like on this job, my cutter, you know, got knocked around too hard and is now lost in the streets of Duskfall for a week. Uh, and now, you know, we got to go steal something and be real sneaky about it. So I'm playing this lurk now. Uh, and you can be invested in that long-term story of the gang's rise without being tied to my character is what I'm here for in this story. Uh, having run a longer campaign of Blades in the Dark, uh, you're exactly right. Um, it uh, This system is designed to play eight to maybe ten session arcs. Uh, and then at the end of that, you go up in tier. Now you face bigger threats, uh, harder challenges. You're uh, punching even farther upward. Um, I played three... Uh, arcs and it was really fun to watch the crew go from like uh, indeed like a small rotating cast of scoundrels to like a i believe they had control of the one of the major private universities at the mm -hmm. end of the the campaign arc and it was really cool to watch them go from a small operation to a huge operation and if you watch like peaky blinders right you can see that progression every season they are they they kind of tear up, right? They uh, they fight a bit a bigger foe. Catton's uh, next question is: I really like the clock mechanic in the system. Do you feel it defines the narrative too much, or do you feel as uh, it's more of a tool to keep the PCs moving forward? From the GM's perspective, I think that it is neither of those things. It is a measure of what the PCs are doing, but the 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 players and their characters and the crew at large are deciding what they're doing, um, and so it's more they're more a measure, I think, than uh, than than actual um, a narrative tool, uh, but. I don't know, uh, maybe the players feel differently. No, honestly, as a player, I really enjoy getting that little pie piece as a reward so that I actually feel <laughs> like I'm going in the correct direction. Because especially since I'm that, like, really versed in, like, a lot of uh, the rules and intricacies of the of the RPGs that I play. Sorry uh, about that, 
I guess. <laughs> but okay, because of that, <laughs> like, because sometimes I don't recognize the references or sometimes I don't know, like, oh, this is how this is usually played. So I should be going in this direction. Having this sort of like, you did a good thing. I feel like I feel like that's really necessary. Catton's next question is, you all do a great job playing the characters in this system, uh, but it feels like the system itself really only lends playability to one dimensional characters, like how a particular character. Uh, how each particular cultist has a specific set of skills that they're good at. Do you as players feel that way? I think you're, you're probably correct in that assessment. And I think it kind of ties back to what Dan and Sean were saying, where like the system is, you know, designed to uh, be more about the crew as a whole with uh, the players taking on the role of multiple different characters. And so because uh, you're kind of all focusing on progressing the crew and then like the individual characters are kind of like a stable of of characters that you draw from, uh, I think it does kind of uh, lend itself towards like more one dimensional characters who are just kind of like, they're good at the thing they're good at and that's them. And, and like, whether it's like, you mean one, whether you mean one dimensional, like, you know, skill wise, or whether you mean one dimensional, like, you know, this person, (laughs) not, this isn't me being, this isn't a critique cover. Uh, or whether you mean one dimensional in the sense, it's like dub is a crazy person who likes explosions and everything, everything he looks at, he thinks about it in a crazy way and how to explode it. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like that's, that's like, uh, you know, I think that's, that's what the characters in blades of the dark are kind of designed to be more or less. Uh, Catton's next question is, do you feel that the legwork needed to be done by the GM is more or less strenuous than other comparable systems? Uh, I guess that's for me and Sean, who have run this game. I think I said this before a little bit. It's a lot of work and knowing the world um, and then being able to um, effectively react uh, to what the um, what the players are doing. And the players might tell you, oh, we're thinking of doing this. Or you might have given them breadcrumbs to do something or uh, created a contact or an NPC that they want to go and visit. And I think it's a lot more, at least for my style, um, just kind of all of the knowledge and, uh, and rules uh, and knowing the rules rather than like, okay, they're going to go to this house. It's the two-story house that I mentioned before. Here are still the ways to egress. Uh, da, 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 da. Um, but Sean, do you, what do you think? Yeah, totally. It's, it's all about, uh, knowing how the world would react. And I think the best tool the book gives you is the list of factions and their goals. And then you have clocks for their goals going on in the background so that you know how in general the world is reacting, uh, to what the players are doing. And then the players will see, these clocks like um and then they'll start involving themselves in that and then uh that will uh when you mess with the spirit wardens you'll make some friends you'll make some enemies and like (laughs) like some more factions will get drawn in and then that's how the game just perpetuates itself and the rest of Catton's questions are actually about uh, EMPCs as a whole. Mm. Um, looking back at past seasons, was there any other systems in particular that you wish you would have gotten the opportunity to play? So we actually already covered this. Um, uh, we all love every all of the seasons, and Seth wants to play Tefra. Tefra. Covert <laughs> <laughs> um, also wants to play Tefra, so that wouldn't. Wait, Seth inactive. wants to play Tefra with Covert. Yeah. <gasps> <laughs> You guys are adorable. <laughs> um, 
Catton's next question is what 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 was your favorite character to play out of all of the season? I mean, mine's easy. It's it's Bumbles. It's always Bumbles. It's always gonna be Bumbles. <laughs> mine's either Barnabas or Boomer, and that's and that's tough because I've I I really liked all of the characters I made. Uh, maybe this is just for nostalgia reasons, but I really want to play Crethlin again. It's been a long oh, time. I want to get that Scottish accent back. Uh, the immortal, indestructible Tudge for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tudge touchy. was your swan song. <laughs> Man, up until exactly this moment, I thought I was just gonna like be like straight up like, oh, it's 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 Bastion, like for sure. He was just tons of fun to play. I don't usually get to play in a system that allows me to actually be always competent at the thing I'm good at. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's like Bastion was like my little bit of like a power fantasy where I was like, I made a character who's good at fighting and he is good at fighting. <laughs> um, but uh, right up until the moment where I started talking, I was like, Bastion, Bastion. Yeah, Bastion. And then I just stopped and I was like, but bumper though, oh, <laughs> because 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 the question was says what was your favorite character to play and it's like Bastion sure he was extremely capable and that that was like really fun for me to actually be able to do that especially coming off of like Oberon and stuff but <laughs> fucking Oberon <laughs> get it together Oberon he was Oberon was supposed to be good uh, Come on, but <laughs> but then I just like stopped and I was like but. But Bumper, he was just incredibly fun to play because I half the time didn't know what I was saying as I was saying it. And I just like would let my mouth run rampant and be like, that's what Bumper says. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and while it took me a really long time to uh, shed the the Bumper voice, <laughs> like long after we played, um, one thing I realized recently that stuck to me uh, was that up until playing Bumper and now only after having played Bumper, I do that thing that he does where he says like, that was real good or that was real this way. Cause I used to say really. And then when I played Bumper, I kept on saying like, Oh yeah, that's like real mean. And, and then, <laughs> and then from there on out, like that's now how I talk. <laughs> I just, I say real instead of really. And it's all because of Bumper. <laughs> so I, I think I love like m mouse is just like a part of me. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, I, I love her. I don't, but I don't know if she was the most fun to play. Um, I can second that having sat next to you for all of both Shadowruns <laughs> and watched you have a near panic attack basically every episode for all of both Shadowruns. I think your most off mic phrase throughout all of them was, we're going to die. <laughs> and... Elkiri was a powerhouse and it was really cool to become a Jedi from the Padawan. And I, I loved that. Um, and uh, again, Juliet is amazing. Um, <laughs> but I think the most fun character I played was Zodra. And it's because I'm not the funny one. <laughs> and so Zodra got more laughs than anyone else and we still say like get it together jimmy you let people have their bliss uh, <laughs> your 
bartender. And uh and things like that. Uh and so uh everybody else was like super wackadoodle and so I could like sit back, relax, and then when my moment came, I was like, here's a funny thing I say. <laughs> uh and that was really fun. And so I think the most fun I had was playing Zodra. And uh Catton follows up that question with which NPC is your favorite? I mean, I'll go first again. It's Jerry. It's always Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, mine were easy, (laughs) y'all. Probably surprising no one. Mine's going to be Grundlefug. Yeah, but can Grundlefug count? I mean... (laughs) He's the essential NPC. Excuse me, does Grundlefug count? Grundlefug is the reason the podcast is called Essential NPCs. (laughs) You know what? That's right. I I misspoke, and I hope everyone can forgive me, especially Grundlefug. Yeah. Grundlefug is watching over us right now. That's right. (laughs) Blessings of Grundlefug to you. Uh, I think specifically, though, I would want to play Bartholo and Grundlefug. I think that would be a a great uh, NPC team to play. Oh, what was the, the 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 pirate out of the Star Wars series? What's his name? It's, it escapes me. Oh, right Monechi Pern. Yes, <laughs> Monechi Pern. I thought he was so cool. <laughs> uh, and then, like, he had the pirate fleet just come out of nowhere and start attacking. I fucking loved that part so much. <laughs> and he had a gold tooth. <laughs> How cool is that? But they have the technology. He could have another tooth. And what does he do? He does the pirate thing, and he has a gold tooth. Finds some <laughs> motherfucking gold, then he puts it in his mouth. Yes. So, yeah, I, I, I would have liked to have played him, especially with the, an entire privateer fleet. Air quotes for those of you listening at home. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite NPC? Welby. <laughs> Hands Welby. down. Welby, of course. Best. <laughs> so, I think my favorite NPC is someone we haven't actually mentioned yet. It's Mabel. <laughs> oh, yeah, Mabel. That's a good pick. Yeah. <laughs> the greatest love story oh. in the galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> I will I will hitch my wagon to that answer. <laughs> uh, hang on, wait. Is Tudge and Mabel's shipping name Mudge or Table? <laughs> oh, it's a hundred percent table. It's absolutely. <laughs> <table>. <laughs> And Catton's final question is, out of all of the PCs that have been played over these 10 seasons, which PC do you think would adapt to life on Manifest the fastest, excluding the PCs from Manifest originally? Fucking solid question. I like that one a lot. Barnabas Gunsby. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, easily. (laughs) A crack shot and a survivalist? That's Yeah, that's pretty good for Manifest. An alien planet? You mean a new challenge? <laughs> I think Dirkman would probably do pretty well in Manifest too. I think most of the like shooty, stabby, bulky, survivally people would do pretty well. I think the person who would um, translate to Manifest successfully uh, the quickest is Elkiri. Uh, because you drop her in a city and she already like she has the serpent's tongue ability and can like also has telekinesis and she's just there and like is illuminated and is uh, in high society already and ball and she doesn't need to drift. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I feel like uh, uh, Mateo could get in with the family pretty quick. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And uh, uh, also, I think Zodra would just do great. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you who won't do well on manifests. Oberon Delgado. <laughs> That's because Oberon doesn't even do well in his own fucking game. I know, and if you take away his magic, what does he have what left? Absolutely and, nothing. And, and rolling natural ones isn't even that great on Manifest. <laughs> Unless it's an unopposed test. Yeah, it's like, no, sure, he knows lore. He can get hits on lore, but <laughs> as soon as he's in a but, fight, it's Yeah, those dodges, brutal. <laughs> oh. Ooh, boy. Also, um, Brother Theodore originally a manifest character yeah he did extremely well on manifest actually (laughs) even with one arm he did so good on manifest manifest rules had to change because of it (laughs) (laughs) yes okay our our next set of questions come from mark uh mark asks what is appealing and or unappealing about the system for each person uh, so we actually, we definitely touched on that uh, frequently. We've given our, our various opinions on uh, Blades in the Dark. Oh, can I add one thing to that question? Sure. Uh, I would say the only thing that that I would change for myself personally, I really don't like being handed non-playable characters, and that was a lot of what uh, the playbooks were, were. Hey, have this person that we made up for you. Oh, you you mean like the like the contacts that like come tied with the playbook? Like, yeah, yeah. Right. You you do love making like your own very intricate backstory full of a robust cast of like Some supporting might say characters. Too robust, yeah. <laughs> Mark's next question is: How was the Church of Many Tentacles chosen for the PCs organization? Uh, and actually, the the because I know the answer to question two, I'll go ahead and throw question three as part of it, which is who chose Church of Many Tentacles, or was it the result of a group discussion? Well, I was very heavily favored towards cult because that's one of my real life interests is uh... <laughs> <laughs> just uh, really into cults. <laughs> Nothing weird about that. Just. Just casually into cults. Look, man, if people want to join my cult, I'm not going to stop them. <laughs> the cult of covert. So I gave the group um, uh, the choice of here are the crew types that I think will fit well into telling a full story in 10 episodes. Uh, and cult was one of them. And they pretty much unanimously were like, oh, let's be a cult. And I was like, cool, I'm not interested in like just a straight up evil cult. Let's do something with a little nuance. How about the Church of Many Tentacles? You OK with that, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you sealed the deal when you're like, if you guys are cults, you're, you're going to probably be the church of any tentacles dan was like discussion over (laughs) (laughs) i'm actually really proud of how i have birthed forth a cult that now spans across three (laughs) distinct role-playing systems worlds (laughs) (laughs) oh that's hilarious mark's next question is uh what's each person's favorite thing about the church of many tentacles i guess that's your answer dan I think I think my favorite thing is when the I, I like the Church of Many Tentacles because it promises the moment when you r- remember that it's a cult. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important to help the elderly because they've contributed <laughs> so much already that it's only fair. And they're so full of wisdom. Um, I feel like a lot of people should listen more to their elders uh, because they've lived and experienced life and have a lot to offer. 
For me, it's all about being a good neighbor, you know? Um, <laughs> really really getting in and, and finding the people you live with, finding your community, and really showing them the love. I don't know. Did somebody already say recycling? I think recycling is great. It's <laughs> <laughs> a pretty good thing. It's kind of great. <laughs> Um, so my favorite thing about the church of many tentacles is that uh the tenants are you know kind of the things we've all said but then it's a very vague bring about the end times and you can do it however you want um so like uh, as long as the end times happen you are furthering the cult's goals it's you know it's it's really it's really uh, open to interpretation (laughs) the the scripture is very, uh, very uh, uh, accessible to people of all walks of life, and that's why you can put it in—you can port it into any RPG system that you want. <laughs> For more information, you can go to www.churchofmanytentacles.com and uh, uh, go ahead and just just click uh, the join button. Uh, and then Mark has a couple "what if" questions. Um, how would each player change your character if you were? to make that same one again and why i wouldn't because swiss army cart (laughs) Uh, i think a lot of the choices i made with brother theodore as the spider um, were born out of somebody of the other four players was already better at the thing i was thinking about going and investing experience in you know if Morgan hadn't been there, Brother Theodore would have been better at talking to you and, and intimidating people. Or if Dirkman hadn't been there, he would have been better at combat. Or if Gok hadn't been there, he would have been more spooky and, and magic. Or if, if Dub hadn't been there, he would have been more tinkery. But like because of having five people and the spider's role and playbook being largely supporting the other people in your group, uh, Brother Theodore ended up kind of good at a lot of stuff and if i was going to do it over again i probably would have picked a road to go further down at the expense of being a little bit less broad uh i would have given dirkman an accent because (laughs) this was my last uh my last time playing in essential npcs and uh i didn't i just angry you (laughs) yeah yeah, it was just angry me, and you know, it could have been a lot more fun. Actually, I think what I was expecting was to be possessed, and then I would have to play a different character every time I got possessed. I didn't know it was just going to be like kind of a flash forward thing. So I was like, eh, I guess I won't really work that hard on Darkwind's voice. But uh, looking back, yeah, that's the one thing I'd change. Mark's next question is uh, for you, Addy. Uh, how would you change an NPC or plot thread, and why? I don't know that I would, actually. Uh, the. A lot of what happens in Blades in the Dark is how the world reacts to what the players are doing. And I think that to um, go in and change something would have been kind of disingenuous to the system. And even like my mistakes, like uh, like Gok's therapist, which I just forgot what he sounded like for a little while, uh, <laughs> turned into a really interesting character um, because of you know, a mistake that I made. Uh, so I actually wouldn't have changed any plot threads or um, or NPCs pretty much at all. I'm, I'm pretty satisfied. Uh, and Mark's final question is, uh, he can't remember if this has ever been asked, uh, but why do you use SoundCloud instead of something like Google Play or iTunes or any of the other streaming services? Uh, so when we started um, Essential NPCs, um, almost... 
five years ago now, um, the options for uh, hosting a podcast were a lot more limited. Um, it was either self-hosting, um, Libsyn, or SoundCloud were really the only ones that were out there. Podbean didn't really even exist in its form uh, that it does now. So we decided that uh, SoundCloud had the better reputation and also the capacity to upgrade your file size uh, and also would broadcast to kind of all of the recasters. Um, you know, it would go to iTunes and Google Play and podcasts and um, kind of everything in between. Uh, so whatever you listen to it on, um, that is all pushed from, um, from SoundCloud. And that's why we chose it initially and then kind of stuck with it because migrating that over was going to be a lot of work for an uncertain payoff. Uh, our next set of questions come from Bryce. Bryce says, I believe it was mentioned that the group decided to go with the Church of Many Tentacles pretty quickly. But what other types of organizations were the players interested in? That decision seems to be a core component more important than character creation in this system. Uh, so, Addy, what were some of the other options you gave us besides cult? Uh, I believe Shadows was one of them and uh, Assassins were the ones that I thought we could tell a really robust story in 10 episodes. There are some really cool smuggling arcs and stuff like that, but I thought that it might be a little hard uh, to get a cohesive story going in 10 episodes with some of the other ones. I didn't even remember the rest of them when I saw Cole. <laughs> <laughs> just threw the rest of them out. Bryce's next question is the mechanics of jobs and heists in this system seem to be a highlight. Have you ever tried incorporating some aspect of it in another system? Uh, what other mechanics of the system do you enjoy? I think we've said, uh, Sean at least specifically has said multiple times uh, that he uses clocks in various other systems. I think we all can kind of agree that like clocks is a very portable mechanic that you can take out of Blades in the Dark and put into really any system if you want to like have that kind of visual representation of progress for your players. Um, and then Bryce's final question is, I am running a non-heroic, but not particularly villainous, mostly due to incompetence, <laughs> game right now. What do you enjoy about these sorts of games uh, where characters aren't where characters aren't strictly good in the classical sense? What advice do you have about playing in or running these games? Uh, I think the most broadly applicable advice is just talk to each other. <laughs> like, <laughs> talk to each other about what you're comfortable with and like what level of you know moral gray areas or not goodness or outright evil you're fine with. Because like I know when we did like Shadowrun, which is a system of you know we're all criminals and we killed a lot of people on our jobs. Like that's sort of how shadow run works. And you don't, you know, we all kind of understood that going in, but like if you were going to play D and D and you didn't have the understanding at the beginning of the game, like, yeah. So you as D and D adventurers are going to get hired to steal a thing. And it's totally fine. If you kill all the guards on your way to the thing and then getting out, like that would be weird and jarring. Um, and I think one of the reasons like NPCs work so well with sometimes having characters who's who have like these dark issues they're they're working through or just do some outright screwed up stuff is because we've all sort of come together beforehand and talked about like 
what are these people going to be like when we play them in this game together? I, I think one of my tricks is like if I'm running for people who are playing characters who are a little a little more morally flexible than like, you know, what would qualify as heroic. If I'm if I'm wanting to like kind of calm that down a little bit, um, I'm just conscientious of the kind of choices I give them. Like I'll give them choices where they can be like the bad guys, but I also might give them choices where they can like it's profitable for them to do something that is good. And then it's like, do they want to do that or do they want to just do this mean thing because they're mean people? <laughs> For me, even playing like I always like playing like the good guy, not necessarily morally upstanding, but mostly good. Yeah, I don't think I've ever played like an outright evil character i think the furthest i've gone that is like still enjoyable for me as an experience like to play the game is like bastard with a heart of gold like i gotta do something every now and then that shows i really care and and, (laughs) or otherwise i'm just not having fun being this person (laughs) yeah that would be my recommendation for a game like that too make sure you have like like when you talk to each other decide on limits and make sure you have something that like at, at least among your group justifies you. I I think the cult at least like we did that by like making the cult it's like a humanitarian organization that also wants to bring about the apocalypse for <laughs> humanitarian reasons. <laughs> so what it comes down to when you are playing with um potentially um touchy subjects or or uh, morally gray or something that might might make someone uncomfortable and it doesn't have to be villainous actions right um the the important thing is is that you as the gm foster an open uh dialogue um between you and your players uh and hopefully between the player like amongst the players themselves but mostly that uh that trust is there so that your players can come to you and be like i am not comfortable with this um this is a this is like a bridge too far or this is something that makes me think of something bad uh in my life that i don't want to remember or whatever the 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 trust to do the dubious thing um and and still have it be comfortable for everybody is really important and making sure that that is you know your your boundaries are set at the beginning of the campaign you know you have that session zero and then um you know you're checking back in with your table uh, as things progress further and further down like the the like tunnel <laughs> is is a really important thing that I, I don't think that I can stress enough. Our next set of questions comes from Kara or Kara. Not sure which. I hope I pronounced one of those right. Um, <laughs> uh, what advice do you have for GMs and for players when a player has to drop out of a campaign? Uh, what are some of the things that you can do other than killing off the character? Um, I know that you have some experience with this because there was a rotating cast in Series 9. I know, like... 70 or 80 percent of our advice always comes back around to this but it's you know talk it's it's all about communication right (laughs) uh it it's like my my usual deal is like you know you obviously it it depends entirely on why the player is dropping out 
Um, but like I've had, you know, people drop out of campaigns and like, I've been like, okay, well, do you want to do one final session? And like, we can like kind of cater the story to like, have you have a goodbye session basically. And we can ha- get that like, you know, narrative resolution. Also, you know, if they, if they die, then like, usually that happens because of like, the narrative, the narrative allowed that to happen. I also do very often ask, like when someone's dropping out of the campaign, I'll be like, cool. Do you want to die or do you want to have another reason to leave? <laughs> um, and, and, and really it's just like talking to the person who's leaving and figuring out, um, if there's any like, you know, kind of like ideal way for their character to like s- slip out of the campaign in a way that doesn't disrupt the narrative horribly. Or you can do kind of like what I did in series nine um, and I've done before. Um, and it's been that the character doesn't get removed from the narrative entirely. Um, instead they become an NPC usually like removed from the direct relate or removed directly from the group. So they become like in Shadowrun, they become like a contact they can call up for favors, but they're not going on every job with them, that kind of a thing. Or like in a more like adventure based thing, like, you know, or like, like on Manifest, right? Like they went off to live their lives on another part of the planet and then like later could show up as an NPC and be helpful because they have this history and they're not dead. (laughs) Alternatively, on the side that doesn't get talked about a lot is like if it's an am an amicable thing you can talk to people and you can work something out and if it's not an amicable thing you can just quietly remove their character from your narrative and move on and just kind of forget about them i have unfortunately been in that position before and i found that's kind of the best thing is like just try and figure out a quick reason to get a character away from the party that's continuing on in this adventure and then just kind of don't deal with it anymore (laughs) (laughs) yeah just like uh an offhand like at the beginning of the session being like yeah and then like in the week between what happened during last session what happened now that guy just stayed in the tavern (laughs) 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 he was like i'm cool here and then you guys left and that was it goodbye (laughs) the next question is on the other end of the spectrum what advice do you have for players trying to find a group to join learn to gm (laughs) <laughs> well <laughs> yeah, I mean it's you're... good advice is the thing <laughs> there's public games and it's also worth looking and if you can't make it out to like a public game like uh, like D&D Adventures League or Shadowrun Missions uh, you can always check out Roll20 and you're also going to find a lot more variety of game systems on there and you can actually filter for your time zone or whatever time slot works for you, um, and it's I've I've played a couple of games on there, and I've met some real cool people on there. Um, and so Roll Twenty is definitely a, a great place to look to to look for a game that fits your schedule and the system you want to play. Roll Twenty dot net endorsed by the Cult of Covert. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't speak from personal experience, but I am aware that uh, there is a subreddit that's r slash LFG that is specifically for looking for RPG groups. I've, I've never used it myself. I apologize if it turns out it's ineffective for you, <laughs> but I know it's there and it's fairly big. I was going to say in the same vein, literally every comic book slash game store I've ever been in has a D&D night. Again, I've never been to one of those, but like <laughs> literally every single one I've been in is like D&D on Wednesday night, D&D on Thursday night. Uh, I'll, I can speak for personal experience on that. 
it's how I met most of the people here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of people they they shy away from like organized play type stuff because they don't want to. You know, there's there's a lot of structure that comes with organized play. It's it's definitely a different flavor of game than like a home game. Um, but my my recommendation for that is kind of what happened with Dan, right? Like you went to Adventures League, you met some people, you liked playing with them, and then you're like, hey, you guys want to do this not at Adventures League? <laughs> and, and then a home game was born. <laughs> Pretty much. The next question is, was there any point the idea that either Gawk or Theodore's players may have uh, played as Sister Daphne? She was found pretty late, but if she had been found sooner, could she have become a player character? She may have. And uh, I touched a little bit on this before, uh, but someone was going to be the betrayer. So it turns out probably it would have been them if they had picked her up. So exciting stuff. (laughs) Um, And then we have a question from Chaz. You brought a humorous tone to Blades in the Dark. What drove that tone? Is it inherent in the game? How much did you discuss it as a group going into season 10? Basically, we're a bunch of goofballs. Yeah, literally. It was bound to happen. Everybody here is just really funny. I mean, excluding me. I'm just funny because everybody else is, and I riff off of that. But everybody here is really fucking funny. I think sort of the impetus for specifically making a cult of weird goofballs um, was something that Addie mentioned earlier. Um, when we started off in Blades in the Dark, Addie straight up told us like she wasn't interested in running the super grim, dark, down and gloomy and just ultra downer of a setting that Blades in the Dark certainly can be. And then all of us were extremely on board to make a <laughs> bunch of weirdo goofballs. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it it could have been if we had done like Shadows or Assassins, it could have been a more like, you know, uh, middle key type game where we're a little bit our characters fit a little bit more into the world. This kind of like fringe cult of weirdos uh, allowed us a lot of uh, (laughs) a lot of silliness. Yeah, if you want to be a fringe religion in a grim, dark world, you just got to be upbeat. <laughs> exactly. That's how misfits in a world of misfits were. <laughs> but even still with all the goofiness, like they were still ultimately religious zealots. Yeah, remember when we murdered that person? <laughs> exactly. And our last set of questions in the last post-game chatter <laughs> comes from of the ethereal. Uh first question is what are your feelings, experiences, and approaches regarding LGBTQ plus representation in your content? There have been a fair few instances of such representation, both blatant and implied, throughout the seasons of the podcast. As a queer youth, such instances often make me smile. Are you happy with the way such topics have been dealt with in your content? We've always tried tried to create um, worlds that are realistic and um, LGBTQ plus um, is a real thing in the real world. And so to ignore or um, excise that sort of reality uh, is not only disingenuous, but uh, potentially hurtful. And we would never want to do that. So... Um, at least um, as far as like the general um, inclusion of peoples in general, um, it was important to us to make sure that representation was there. Yeah. I mean, if you want to make a world feel real, it's going to have all sorts of different types of people in it. And like, if I, as a GM just like 
you know, defaulted to making every single NPC and PC, uh, like, you know, a mirror image of myself, that would be a fucking boring world. <laughs> uh, I don't have a whole lot to add, um, other than I'm really happy that a choice I made made you smile when I decided Bumbles liked Bryn. That's just really nice to hear. Yeah, that, 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 qu- this question really warms my heart. Um, I love the part of RPGs where you get to, um, kind of step into the shoes of people that have different experiences from you. Like, uh, playing Mateo as Ace was really fun. Um, and, uh, I recently, I started up a group with, um, uh, someone who's only played a, f- a few games and like, as they were rolling up their character, um, uh, I, I asked everyone to like, kind of introduce, uh, their character, like what their name was, uh, and like, uh, and she asked like, like kind of like apprehensively, like, uh, can my character be like a gender? And I was like, yes oh my god yes absolutely and like kind of uh watching this player relax as they realize that they didn't have to like put the stress of like uh representing something that they just weren't interested in um and like watching them open up and have so much fun playing that character the character that they wanted to play was like it felt great uh uh inclusion there should be like a note on inclusion i think like every rpg book about uh, character creation <laughs> of the ethereals next question is for the players uh, are there any instances where you have wished you could have explored your character's backstories more fully both in this season and in others uh, have there been characters you wish have been fleshed out a little better uh, and do you have any choices you now regret i think literally every season and every character i make like I start with such a huge expansive backstory and like a history of a character that just isn't even helpful or useful in gameplay. Uh, so like usually bringing stuff like that up feels unnatural and I feel like, well, you know, the, the character just didn't go this way, but at least I know, I know that that is all there. Um, <laughs> Do you have any, any secrets about any of your characters that never made it to the air? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I'll have to think about that. Honestly, uh, Gawk has a twin sister. Ooh, nice. Yeah, it's 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 on like my character sheet. I changed I changed one of the like contacts. I think my rival is my my twin sister who was adopted by like a wealthy family and like works for the church. Hmm. I kind of wanted to explore Bankard's backstory a little bit more. I think it's going to sound really corny, but I like the idea of like him finally settling down and stop smiting stuff and just like, <laughs> or something horrible happens to him and I get to play Ruth. <laughs> I I don't think I have any regrets about any characters, um, but the one character that just, because I started with a very large breadth of knowledge, ended up having not like a, t- a very extremely broad and detailed backstory, but having several extremely detailed and specific scenes I had in mind as things that had happened to him uh, was Jaxamar because I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. <laughs> um, and so like in preparation for like playing a Jedi Knight who was supposed to be training a Padawan, 
I had like started thinking about, I was like, okay, well, what is, what does Jaxamar think about the various lightsaber forms? Well, I, his master probably taught him this, and this is probably what he came <laughs> to about that. And like, I have that for a lot of different things about the force. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think the, I don't regret that it wasn't explored in this, in the series, um, because it wouldn't have made any sense to do that. I, I liked the pacing of, of series one. Uh, but, uh, with Oberon, I think one, one thing that's kind of a little, not so much a bummer, but like kind of like is a little sad is that we're never going to get to see, cause we never went back to D and D we're, we're never going to get to see the resolution of Oberon and Hearsome. That was, that was always a part of that character from the very beginning, and, and like, so we got to reveal it in season one and I was really, really happy about that. But it, you know, because we never went back to D and D I'm, I'm never going to get to see how that played out. And the one thing I didn't know for sure was how Oberon and here some work once Oberon knows. <laughs> and so that would have been a really interesting thing to explore that we'll just, you know, we'll just not get to see. Next question, uh, from of the ethereal is, uh, an alternate one for people who have GM'd on the podcast. Have there been any situations where you've wished you could tie the characters better into the plot? Or uh, what about major NPC backstories? All the aspects of the previous question applying. Uh, and are there any plot choices you regret? Uh, I I actually do have one. Uh, I, have a, I have a hashtag regret. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so in series seven, um, we went to Castile uh, in order to see um, Bastion compete in the Festival of Swords. Um, and I, as a GM, thought that it was going really well. And um, as they were kind of extricating themselves from sort of the final fight, they were sort of outing the bad guy. And there was this like bull running around and all this crazy stuff was happening. And um, I realized that I needed more things to spend raises on uh, for the players. And so I decided that uh, to eat up a bunch of raises, I would make it an option that some people get left behind and are like captured. Uh, and if it was a home game, this would not be a regret. But what happened as a result of that, everyone was like, oh, that's so cool and cinematic. And what other uh, system could you do that in? And and Mateo ended up uh, getting captured. And um, that was really cool. And it set up a really cool confrontation with one of the villains. Um, but it ended up adding two episodes to the podcast that I hadn't anticipated on. Uh, and I had to call an audible basically to wrap everything up uh, within the 20 episodes that were allotted for 7C. And so the end ended up being a little bit more rushed and ends on a little bit of a cliffhanger uh, <laughs> where it's just like, oh, wow, behind this door. Cool. Um, <laughs> we got and, behind the door, you guys. Good job. But I would have liked to bring the story to a, a more solid resolution uh, because there was a lot of really cool stuff that was in play that didn't get to get addressed. Um, if it was a home game, like I said before, um, no sweat. I would have let those seasons go on forever. Uh, but because of the limited nature of the podcast series, I do I do regret that that was what I decided to add to a very co cool scene uh, because because of kind of the fallout of it. 
But other than that, no regrets. <laughs> of the Ethereals, next question is, what is everyone's favorite NPC from the podcast in its entirety? Mine is Bryn. His personality strongly appeals to me, and he often makes me smile. Yeah, we, we talked about our, our favorite NPCs for sure. I also agree. Bryn is great. Uh, he's one that I very much enjoyed playing because he's just so damn likable. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but does he have a gold tooth? <laughs> no? Okay. He's got a silver hand. He does have a silver hand, a very nice silver hand. And of the Ethereal's final question and the final question for the final post-game chatter is, what is everyone's favorite season, given that the podcast may be ending for good? Uh, yo, it's Tefra. I don't know if y'all got that before. <laughs> it's definitely Tefra. Tefra's my shit. I love that fucking season. <laughs> I, I will say... As a player, having enjoyed them the most, it was uh, two and five for Shadowrun. But what I think my favorite season of ENPCs is, is eight for Star Wars. I think like everyone who's been on this podcast is a great role player and has put on incredible seasons. But like we, I feel, made something special in that season where we managed to have like just an incredible story with these powerful moments that like just came together perfectly and like every now and then i will like still listen back to some of those and just marvel at how well we managed to do that without anyone really talking to each other about what was going to happen in those scenes two yeah series two and five that that's definitely up there we had a lot of great moments there too but my my answer is probably going to be a little biased and that's going to be season four um I believe this was discussed before, but uh, it was originally a home campaign that we didn't get to finish, and I had a lot of fun playing Barnabas Gunsby during this home game. And so it was finally super satisfying to, for me personally, to get to wrap up Barnabas's story and 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 see its end and uh, see the end of the Atroposian Circuit. Uh, I I had waited years to be able to complete that campaign, so perhaps my answer is a bit biased or, or or skewed but that i had a ton of fun playing that that there was definitely a moment at the end of that where uh like covert and i were able to just like share a moment and be like we did it <laughs> we did the atroposian circuit <laughs> i was thinking about that the other day and like what like i still feel bummed about the dollar that like that's what you that's what we won and I was like, like I was, <laughs> I oh, wanted yeah, to win end, something, yeah. and we won like a dollar, or there was a bet for a yeah, dollar, yeah, or there was, <laughs> there was a dollar, and I was sad about it. All of all of <laughs> all of the twelve court elite members pitched in a dollar for the bet, and and the victor's purse was a dollar from each of them, uh, uh -huh. which was ha absolutely in the like long long ago homebrew campaign that only made it three sessions into the Atroposian circuit. That was something I knew then. <laughs> and I'd been sitting on that for that long. Oh my God. Real reward was the friends you gained along the way. No, it was $12. <laughs> Jeez, gosh, you guys, we've told so many stories together and they, they're all so nice and, and, fun and pleasant uh 
uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say a weird series for a weird reason. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say series six atomic highway. Um, because I remember going home after, uh, we've like locked ourselves in a, in a basement and, and, uh, just like knocked out that series in three days of just like nonstop role playing. And, uh, I went back to my apartment with, uh, Alex Kohansky. Um, and we just kind of like exhaustedly like flopped on couches and we're just like, wow, we really just did that. We just like, we hold up for a full weekend and we told a story together with our friends and like I'll uh, that like that kind of feeling of of accomplishment like it's never been so clearly distilled I think uh, after any other series like it was the I definitely felt that the strongest like collapsing after <laughs> finishing series 6 picking a picking a favorite season is hard for me i i think like i wish i i wish i could pick one like as a listener <laughs> but i've been in, I've, you know being uh involved in each one makes it so it's it's like i can't just be like this was the one that was the funnest to listen to there's a lot of like a lot of components i have to think of and like obviously man like the manifest season is always going to be extremely dear to my heart because it was the like public premiere of manifest as a setting and a system like it was it's going to that's like that was a that was step one of like a monumental shift in my life and like after we hit up like finished the upload on the very first episode i had like a panic attack i was just like as soon as it was out there i was like that's it there's no i can't take it back now there's no way to dial this back and be like sorry it's all canceled no one gets to see this yet like it's there now uh, and I, uh, like Addie had to like, <laughs> like talk me down cause I was freaking out. Um, and like, that's like, you know, so it's always going to be a huge thing for me. Um, but I, I don't know if I can like, uh, if, if I'm just biased towards that one being my favorite. Cause I also like series eight, similar to what Dan was saying, right? Like that one felt like the story beats were all there and everything went really well. I felt like all the characters, like found their moments and like played them perfectly. Um, and I've never done intrigue as well as I did on Tarvo. Uh, <laughs> You're and, welcome. And, and, and like, and so like there's that, but then also all the, the amazing fan feedback we get from series two and five, like, you know, tons of people like, you know, uh, uh, like c- citing that as like, you know, a, a, a way that they were able to like, figure out how to enjoy Shadowrun, a game that was like my very first thing. So not being able to highlight one, cause they're all super special to me for like different reasons. Uh, I think I'm just going to do my cop out answer and I'm going to dial it back around to uh, series nine manifest. It was a really big moment in my life. <laughs> so when I look back to essential NPCs, I'll remember all of these seasons fondly for one reason or another, but the one that will continue to affect my life moving forward for the foreseeable future is the one that gave me the platform to introduce Manifest to the world. Uh, so I guess I'm going to go last. Uh, and uh, like a lot of people, it's really hard to choose. I've been in every single one and um, everyone had like their trials and also their triumphs. And 
I have really good memories uh, from each and every one of them. And uh, some of them I like I still get tagged in like personally from people listening and being like, you know, I, you know, 7C, like the, the creator of 7C was like, this is how it's supposed to be run. And I was like, thank you. I deciphered it correctly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so I have to distill it down to um, my favorite uh, episode which is uh the one uh without dan um is <laughs> <laughs> no dan shows up for the last 40 minutes yeah um Jesus. I, it's it's the <laughs> it's uh the one after uh bumbles dies spoiler alert 516 uh in memoriam and uh it is when mouse uh goes around and uh kind of gathers everybody for um for Bumbles's uh, funeral, because Bumbles loves space, so we're gonna send him into space. Uh, and uh, kind of, uh, it's the one that people like still tag us and are like, "Oh my gosh, I'm crying, you guys! This is brutal." What? Oh my gosh! And you can like see their <laughs> tweets as they're listening, and it's like, "Oh no!" And and you know, you you can hear the moment where Tommy goes, "Bumbles, you open your eyes," and it's like hear them through the cosmos, being like, "What?" Um, and uh, it also explored a lot of weird stuff it was the first time that Brie was on the podcast which was really amazing to have another like female on the cast with me Um, and so I think season five uh, tops it all out though season three is a close second because I just got to listen to everybody else do stuff while I had a migraine Uh, (laughs) Which was great. Uh, I mean, not the migraine part, but the like everybody like doing the heavy lifting and the community coming together to tell a pretty good story. Um, <laughs> but yeah, season season five for me with a season three and a close second. There is a great moment in episode 16 of season five. I, I was just re-listening to it recently. And uh, there's the moment where like you've you've gone to everybody. Now you're going to the people who are like, you know, closest to Bumbles. And it's the red hot nukes, the gang. This is maybe my literal favorite part of like recording this podcast ever, because nobody in the room but me knew what you were doing when you set a grenade down in that parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you set a grenade down in the parking lot. You blew it up. And I was like, okay. And then like. And then I started to realize because of Dan's reaction, what you were going for. And I was like, nothing happens though. And so then you go and spray explosive foam on the side of a building and blow up the side of a building that gets the red hot nukes attention. They come up, they give you a hard time. They're like, well, I don't know you blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and, (laughs) and then like when you're, when you're like, you're, you've gone through this entire emotional moment and this one random red hot nuke Yahoo is giving you a hard time because he doesn't know you. And you're just like, Listen, you either call magnitude, like, if you're not going to help me, I'll just go off and blow up another building (laughs) until magnitude answers. I didn't have his phone number. Uh, Uh, It was it was just brilliant. Uh, Yeah, that's a very good episode. Yeah. So uh, because that episode is in season five uh, and that was my greatest masterpiece (laughs) um uh, season five is gonna is definitely tops out the rest and with that we are done with post-game chatter for series 10 uh the bloops will be released a week from today so that's september 17th and then keep an eye on our social media because september 
24th, Essential NPCs will be hijacking the Manifest the RPG Twitch stream uh, in order to uh, have uh, a final, like, kind of cast party get together hoorah. Uh, with as many of the cast members we can jam into a Skype call. Um, uh, tune into that. It's going to be at 7.30 p.m. Central, September 24th. That's a Tuesday. Uh, we're going to get everyone we can on that stream, uh, and you guys can jump into the chat. We'll talk with you. We'll talk with each other. Uh, we, you got a small taste of it with this post-game chatter, just with the six of us here. Uh, and so we're going to try and get more people in on that, reminisce about the things we liked, maybe even uh, uh, like go over specific moments and talk about them, give you any behind the scenes scoops that we can. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be the last uh, the last time we all get together for essential NPCs. So you don't want to miss it. 730 p.m. Central, September 24th. Uh, thank you all for listening. We've had an amazing five years and uh, hopefully we will see you around the Internet. Y'all are fucking awesome. We love you so much. Enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs> Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by ENPC Productions. All rights reserved. This series of the Essential NPCs podcast is based on Blades in the Dark, a product of 1-7 Design, developed and authored by John Harper, and licensed for use by EMPC Productions under Creative Commons Attribution. For more information, go to www.bladesinthedark.com.